here, everyone. This is the Training Edge Podcast. And if you are new here, I wanted to touch up on what uh, my mission is with this podcast. So the mission here is to explore the ever-present question in sport of where is my limit and how do I get there? We'll share insights from pro athletes, aspiring pros, and coaches across a range of athletic pursuits. All in all, to an, an attempt to uncover how to unlock our greatest potential as athletes. This season, I've stuck with the focus of chatting with coaches and having roundtable discussions where we ask each other an array of questions of topics that have been on our mind and what we have been working with our athletes on. All the coaches I've had on so far have wide depth of experiences and please scroll back through and give them a listen because cover some pretty good stuff. Um, please also give this podcast a rating and review if you could be so kind. Now, today is part two of my coaching roundtable with Adam Mills. If you have not listened to part one, I 100% encourage you to go back through and start there. But this is another good one. And again, I want to thank Adam for joining me. Now, without further delay, on to my coaching roundtable discussion with Adam Mills. All right. Um, Next question. So I'm looking to uh, start directing a little bit this year, kind of depending on how this year goes. Um, but, you know, it's on course to happen. So with your experience as a director, I wanted to pick your brain. Um, so to start, my question is, you know, biggest difference between coaching and directing a team. So like what the varying uh degrees are within those two scenarios well one driving a car right <laughs> in a caravan is, yeah. is really uh it's really stressful on one hand on the other hand man it's fun to drive those cars in the caravan yeah I bet. <laughs> um yeah so when i when i directed the the elevate team before khs and paul abrahams came in mm -hmm. and, and Paul is a way better director than I ever was. Um, and he has done a great job with that team. But um, Paul and I had a lot of conversations just because I was more than happy to turn the reins of that, that club over to him. Cool. Um, I, I, as I told the owner of the team, uh, I, I like doing this. I like being married more. <laughs> That's such a fair point. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the primary difference, and this is like my exercise physiologist coming out okay. and at the time there were so many races you needed a 10 or 12 man roster yeah because yeah. guys got tired um and the exercise physiologist in me was thinking like oh well looking at baseball you have to think of your riders as like pitchers in a rotation and even if you have your your one guy like a Corey williams that will always be a great finisher and will always win field sprints you absolutely cannot enter him in 90 days of racing a year. Yep. Because it will get really ugly. <laughs> and you have to pick and choose when you're gonna when you're gonna enter, you know, enter your, your athletes and, and what's gonna be good for them. And and then there's always gonna be races where they just have to fill a roster spot, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's not the case anymore, but again, if these teams go to multidiscipline, then then yeah, it might be a thing again. Um, but then it all becomes like it's this issue of, of personal interactions between the two riders. So if you have two riders that work great together, 
sprinter and a lead-out guy, it doesn't really do you much good to have a, the lead-out guy in the race without the sprinter. Uh, or, a, or a time trialer doing, you know, an uphill-only race. That's <laughs> uh, not usually your best idea in the world either. But So you have to kind of balance who and, and who plays well with others, right? Um, so that's always couple things to keep in mind and then uh how long can someone be on the road and be effective and and the race aspect uh is is as much about communication as anything um you know to what what seems really simple to you strategically uh, i guess i always try to explain things strategically in the race and not tactically unless unless we had to because if you're in the car and you're in car six car six is really 10 cars back yep. you can't see anything from car six so so you have to draw out like <clears throat> strategies that you're trying to execute and then make sure the riders can i guess make tactical decisions in yep. the confines of the strategic outcomes you want. Yeah. respond yeah. yeah right and it seems really simple on paper and it seems simple to you but when you get an athlete who is the strongest rider in the world and just has never had to worry about that. They've never, they don't even understand strategy and, and at a continental level team, you have to explain that kind of stuff. I yeah. feel like in a world tour level team or even like rally doesn't necessarily need to explain that. Um, and then that degree, sometimes you have to go back and watch, watch race film and show them. Um, and that's, that's something that hasn't really been a, thing until probably five to seven years ago yeah like no one no one really watched racing i know the the canadian national team has these whole debriefs of every race they do as a team where they talk about what they did and when and and there's a write-up and sometimes there's a video involved right cool. and and that's part of the reason why that team does really well yeah, um, yeah. i guarantee you a team like Ineos is doing that oh sure uh, and, and I guarantee you that some teams never watch a screen ever. <laughs> um, and to just kind of figure out what's the best path for, for, your, for your team and, and how to make everyone improve the fastest. Because also if you overload someone with knowledge, then it just, what's the, what's the thing? You can remember three things and everything right. after that is out, out the window, yeah. right? Yeah. So... <laughs> So understanding, like, when as soon as those eyes glaze over, it's done. Yeah, I think everyone ever has had a, or any, sorry, every racer um, to a certain degree has had, like, a two-hour-long pre-race meeting. And it just, yeah, you can see it in everyone's eyes that they just glaze at some point. Um, so, yeah, I, I respect the keeping it simple um, mindset. Okay, so it kind of sounds like, the, comparatively at least, a lot of it's kind of like that just uh, eye in the sky kind of viewpoint and maybe more just like a all-encompassing kind of viewpoint rather than individual, you know, pawns, you're seeing the whole board um, and having to dictate that board uh, as you go instead of just one individual. Right, and, and different directors do it differently, I know. Right. right. I've listened to enough of the Johan Brunil show to know that I don't think he did it that way at all. Okay. <laughs> Um, so it just, it just varies, but that's, I've, I had, when I directed the team, I had a couple 
very experienced riders that would take care of everything else on the road. So that was, that was almost easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you get into the motion, um, and I had this conversation the other day, it's like, there's not really that much you can do, um, from the car. Like ultimately they have to race their bikes and they have to operate as a team. Um, and it was also included in the conversation of like, you know, the classic one of whether or not, uh, Conti teams should have radios and be operating with radios. Um, but you know, that's another whole conversation. Um, okay. So how about what would be the biggest thing you've learned or did or learned from directing that you've then applied to your coaching now? Biggest thing I learned from directing and applied to coaching is, uh, man, probably how finite resources are. Mm, okay. um, I think a lot of people think of resources as like dollars, which is true, especially in cycling, but also finite in resources of what's the attention span of every rider or every athlete. Uh, how much duress can an athlete handle before they fall apart, right? Um, you know, how much, how much fear and anxiety does every individual athlete have for whatever, whatever a situation or whatever, a, uh, you know, whatever a power test or whatever it is, right? <clears throat> and to what degree does that affect their performance? Yeah. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Like mental yeah, and physical yeah, energy. Um, and how, how thin you can actually push. Yeah. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned as a racer, 100%. And it's amazing, it's amazing how, long how long people go without, go without thinking of that. Um, and yeah, I point that out to athletes all the time. It's like, okay, you can do that physically, but then what state are you going to be when you get there? Um, and depends, but yeah. I know we had a rider before I even dealt with, was with Elevate or the team before that, which evolved from Think Finance or even before that when, when it was Mercy Cycling yeah. that yeah. like Brad Huff raced for back yeah. in the day. Yeah. Um, and I was never part of that that program, the Mercy team with, with Huff. Unfortunately, I really wish I could have raced with Huff. That would have been amazing. But... Um, I remember it was a U23 rider and he was like leading the amateur version of Joe Martin's stage race one year. And someone asked me like, are we going to like, are we going to tell him what has to happen? You know, all this. And I said, no, absolutely not. Like he, and I said, look at him. Do you think he doesn't know what needs to happen today? <laughs> like he absolutely knows that when the criterion breaks apart, he needs to be in front of the front split. Yeah. yeah. And he's nervous about it. Like no one needs to tell him that. And yet you might have some people that you have to tell that to, or they'll just miss it because they'll have their, their head in the wrong place. Right. Um, so yeah, to that, to that end, like everyone's, everyone's got a limit and everyone varies with what you have to explicitly tell them. And some of them you have to explicitly tell them very little. <laughs> Sometimes the less you tell them is better. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like the type of athlete and how much to, how to guide them in their, in your, how you're coaching them and what they need. Um, doing that as a director and doing it to however many riders you might have at a time um i'm i'm intrigued by that challenge i'm sure it'll be interesting but cool well thank you yeah that's that's intriguing i'm 
I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think like when I finished racing, I was kind of like, I don't want to direct. And then slowly I've gotten more inclined to do so. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it is. <laughs> All right. Next question. What do you got? Uh, so as a coach, how much focus have you, have you had to, uh, impart or how much focus have you needed to take on yourself to make sure that every athlete, especially this year is in a good place, mental health wise. Mm, that's a great question. Ah, oh, that like kind of stems into my next question. So that's perfect. Um, man, more, a lot more. Uh, I think I've done way more than probably ever uh, by like a hundred percent asked just athletes, how are you doing? And then when they respond, yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, I don't accept that answer. I go farther and I ask like, really, how are you doing? How are, how are things, you know, in your local area? How is, how are, how is your anxiety? How is, um, just where are you at mentally? Um, and I almost cared more about that than how they were feeling physically, uh, which was new because that of course is a huge, you know, factor. And it's something that I always considered, but not to this level because there was so much anxiety and so much uncertainty and almost like, I mean, depression, I would throw that in there too. Um, that was just in everyone during this time. And I realized over the course of the year that, that, um, their training was kind of like for a period of time, the one thing they felt they could control. And because of that, it allowed us to work together on that one thing that they could control, um, which was great because that gave them an outlet and gave something to allow them to feel normal with. Uh, and which is interesting because we, we were without races. So you would think that nothing would be normal in that regard, but it was, it was like everything else is so chaotic that that was the one thing that they could bounce back on um so yeah i would say like every single conversation i had with an athlete um i would ask them you know how are you feeling how are how are you doing mentally and um like how's uh are you feeling stressed like how's your stress level and uh that was tough for some athletes some you know really struggle with opening up like that um, I would say the athletes that I mentioned earlier that um, really like to steer the ship, uh, they notoriously tend to be kind of bad at, at opening up. Um, they also tend to be males, so there's that too. But um, but yeah, it, that was so that was tough. So we had to get through that, which was you know a good challenge as a coach, and I think it really challenged them as athletes and individuals too um, to be open to this concept of like, Hey, we're all kind of messed up right now. And how do we, how do we feel better? Like, what can we do to make things better? Um, and that seemed to be really well received, um, which was also really motivating because it was rare that I'd get off the phone and be like, man, I feel like I really didn't help them at all. Um, cause that can be really discouraging, but yeah, I, I like tenfold stepped it up as far as asking how are you doing um, both, you know, mentally and then finally how that affects how you're feeling and then how's like, 
how's your family taking it? Is that, I mean, it was like covering on everything. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think that I'll hold on to that. Um, cause I think it, it made me a better coach. And I think that it, um, I cared before, but it, it was that moment where you really dive into, um, showing the athlete that you care and then them being receptive of that and then opening up more and then building a better relationship with them and, um, and then being able to get better training accomplished because of that, because those big relationships end up resulting in the best athlete coach relationships, um, out there. So yeah, that would be, that would be my answer. Yeah. We found that starting with the lockdowns, if anyone says they were doing okay or doing great or whatever that, that positive word is, they're, they're probably not telling you the whole truth. And, and to give a lot of, uh, give a lot of attention to them as, and find out how, how we can make them better. Um, I had an athlete that had, had some things happening and, he, uh, he didn't post on social media for a while. And he said that was really interesting because very few people actually would message him and say, how are you doing? Because if you go from posting all the time to not at all, it's not, that's a, that's a abrupt change in uh, behavior, um, social behavior, which is always a telltale sign of like mental, mental upheaval. Right. I guess we'll say red flag. Um, yep. And so for everyone else that's listening, if you've followed someone on social media and you notice like, Oh, I haven't seen them put anything up in months and they usually do three or four times a week, then reach out to that person. Cause they're probably not okay. Um, and they probably need someone to just say, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. And, and that goes for athletes too. And you could, you can see it uh, just by what they're like, how much they're adhering to the training plan and program, and, and recognizing those steps or those that process of that spiral. Um, and to your example, like being able to to put more energy that direction just just does make make us and make you and all of us a better coach. And that's that's I think the ultimate the ultimate goal is to just be the best we can be. And I think it, at least for myself, it forced me to, um, step away from the numbers, you know, step away from their goals, um, and just connect with them as a person and as a human being. Um, and that goes so far, like that's something that I think often gets overlooked by coaches, um, because we're expected to just be like this, um, number slinging, guru um that you know being able to connect with them on a basic level is important and and can't be skipped um so i was grateful to have that reminder um yeah that that helped a ton how uh so i'm, I'm curious then uh just because i've, I've talked to a, co- a couple other coaches about this but have you had any um athletes that have uh come down with covid and um just kind of like what was your experience from that uh we've had a few a few being like more than one less than 100 i guess but, okay um uh, 
enough to know that it is it is about we've seen about five to seven weeks before they feel normal yeah. again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and normal for an athlete, I feel, is different than normal for a a like the middle of the bell curve person. Right. Totally. Um, yeah. Normal for an athlete is is great for a normal for a usual middle of the bell curve person or general healthy individual and an athlete notices like a stuffy nose yeah, or everything. they notice fatigue at, at my at minutia's differences than than uh you know a normal we'll call it just a normal person that doesn't exercise frequently yeah um to that end like if you've had those athletes have had a cold but they're basically asymptomatic they just feel you know they feel run down whereas a, a general healthy population person would just feel like off for mm-hmm. a day or two right uh, but then when you get into this training aspect they'll tell you there's zero chance that workout is happening today um, and so that's what i mean by normal mm-hmm. state they feel like they can actually start training um it's it's uh and it's been rough. I, I did have a client who, at the very, very beginning, he caught it from a, from a trip. And uh, he was sick. The tests were taking so long that he was told to do his two-week quarantine starting the day of the test. But the test was 16 days result. Wow. <laughs> He's like, cool. So two days ago is when my quarantine was over. Um, and he'd been doing the, the quarantine and was like, you know, locked away in his basement. But, um, so it's come a long way from there, but we're still seeing five to seven weeks before someone feels normal. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, hope, luckily no one that we've worked with has had any like major uh, symptoms. Yeah. So we're talking like minor to moderate at best. So, uh, yeah. That's good. Yeah. The one early on that I, one of my athletes early on caught it and, um, yeah, it was three months, hundred percent. Um, and that was like on another level. Cause that was two months till they were able to walk around the block. Um, so it was, that was a really bad one, but then I've had, you know, one recently that, uh, lost taste and, um, smell and, uh, but other than that, it was a pretty mild kind of cold. They had some flashes of weakness, um, which I'm hearing a lot about. But that's, uh, yeah, that was about it. And that was a pretty quick turnaround. It was a couple weeks. Um, but, yeah, this is a crazy thing. Um, and I, def- I definitely took more of like a, a precaution-style approach to getting them going again. Gave way more time. Um yeah, it was like, all right, you're feeling good. Let's let's wait a little bit, um, and let's ease in real slow and see how things go. All right, there's actually uh, towards the end of October, there was a, a, a paper put out about returning to play mm-hmm. for athletes. Yeah, um, I'll uh, I'll send that along to you. Yeah, please. Yeah, I've looked at a couple, um, and pretty much all were like, yeah. <laughs> be cautious, um, give it time. We don't really know like the long-term effects on a lot of this. Um, and a lot of it tends to be fairly like negative if they do have information. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, but I'd love to see it. That'd be great. All right. Um, 
let's let's see i'm trying to think of we've been going for about hour 20. all right i'll jump into number three because i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one um so it's kind of similar in a way but um to your previous question but mine is building mental resilience um so do you ever work with your athletes on mental resilience and mental strength um, and uh, kind of like working on, you know, doing intervals, but also like how to train that side? Um, so like an example might be, you know, someone prepping for their first European race. Um, it might be their first world tour race, first world championships might be, you know, even just doing DK or what was, or is now unbound gravel. So like, do you ever work on that side of the training so it's it's a different approach i don't necessarily have a psychology degree so i don't have a set method of handling that but i think a lot of that preparation mentally comes with the preparation and the process so uh we had a, an athlete do tour land cowie so we went on to YouTube and grabbed a bunch of videos because their courses don't change a ton. Um, and the way that those rate, the cadence of those races is similar every year to year. So it's important to, to watch them and kind of figure that out. Right. Um, and so that helps like mentally you have to know like, Oh, this is just going to be borderline obscene for the first 90 minutes <laughs> okay, of every awesome. stage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Whereas a European race might be, okay, 10 minutes in, the break goes, everybody clog the road, and then we'll just, you know, take a pee break or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but not not in Asia for almost every race. That's not a thing. Um, and so looking at that, doing that preparation, um, something like an unbound 200-mile gravel ride, which is firmly in the realm of silly, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I will preface it by saying this. This is another one of my my sayings but when has anyone ever done a hundred miles of anything and said you know what guys we need another lap Let's do it again yeah. <laughs> uh never it's not a thing um but just doing doing epic days so that you don't jump from the four hour day to the 16 hour day of of in kansas which man june in kansas can be by any weather you want it to be yep or you don't want it to be. And so those kind of preparations go a long way. I think uh, also walking them through what it's going to feel like. Um, for for instance, like a simple VO2 interval done in certain ways means the first two minutes are not horrible and the last minute and a half is absolutely horrific. Um, and then know that you should probably expect that because now you're getting into this like, realm of your absolute ability uh, and to some degree that's that's seems like that's as much of the mental preparation as anything it's just being comfortable knowing that you're going to push your limits of your absolute ability um, some people do better with it some people some people don't some thrive in that in that setting and some people need to be there a bunch to know that they have the confidence that they're going to succeed today um, and to and to be okay with that and, and know that every every athlete and every client's a little bit different um, my myself i i tend to go back and forth 
sometimes I'm, I'm like, let's go for it. And sometimes it's, I got to practice a few times. This is definitely not a good idea. <laughs> uh, you know, unbound being one of them, you know, 200 miles of gravel is just firmly something that I, I finished it and I thought I'm never doing this again. And then there I was like clicking the button to right. sign up again. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so I know. Right. And I, I have no idea what happened. It was just, just instinctual, I guess. Right. But, um, and maybe that's just as much cause I wanted the experience of it all. But, uh, but I think just, just having that preparation and, and having it not be a surprise maybe is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. You know, a cyclocross course where everything is a surprise is not the same as unwrapping a birthday present. <laughs> it's not always as surprise as you like. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say it just varies for everyone a little bit. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned the cyclocross thing because the racing that we had here is pretty much, you couldn't pre-ride. Um, so we had the racing, but it was totally blind on that first lap. So it often made the first lap of the course chaos when the first lap of pretty much any cyclocross race is already chaos. So it was, uh, it was funny to hear how, what athletes encountered during those moments. Um, so what about like athletes that are, um, so like going back to that kind of like going to Europe and, and doing their first, maybe like Kermess or something like that, like going to, and so I, I totally agree with you on the front of like maybe giving them a little bit of a heads up that this might happen probably goes a long way. Um, but it kind of sounds like you were saying like baby steps or like experiencing it and just going there and, and having the concept of like, I'm here to experience this and get through it. Um, so kind of like giving them that, uh, changing the bar as to where that is. So they aren't just floored when they come out the other side. Um, is that sound about right? Uh, yeah, Absolutely. I think those European races, especially, you know, you get those, those semi-classics and classics that those European racers have been doing. I mean, they've been racing those courses since they were juniors. Here's, so they have, I mean, think about, uh, like what's your, what's a favorite race you've done for years when you were racing full time, you know, was it, yeah. and think yeah. about how you would, how you would think of someone who's an elite rider just doing their first time. And, it, and it's like that for, for these European races. You show up and you may be the best American ever, but if it's your first time doing Kearns, Brussels, Kern, I mean, you're not really on their radar. Right. Because right. they know that, oh, the wind's coming from left to right, and you're sheltered right now, so you can't feel it. But in two kilometers, this hedgerow is going to clear for 10K, and it's going to be nuts. And, and you're 100 guys back, and you need to be in, like, 20th spot. But, but those spots have been occupied by entire European teams for the last 15 K. So now you're just screwed, but, but you don't even know it yet because the hedgerow hasn't cleared and just, you know, things that seem mundane like that or, uh, but really are actually pretty important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know what Robin Carpenter posted on Instagram. It was a few months ago or weeks ago, or I don't even know. I, I mean, it's still March, right? So, uh, <laughs> posted up he just put a picture of a map up from a race he did in europe and it was i could not have followed it just looking at the map <laughs> it's a bowl of spaghetti it doubles back on itself yeah. Yeah. And, yeah you know who knows where you're at and, it, and it's one of those things where you're like we just raced a 160k circuit but we were never more than eight kilometers from the car 
Yeah. Man, I've, all, I've always it's I'm always fascinating those they're able to find the race course and stay on course. Like all the officials are able to do that. But again, it goes back to like they've probably done it since they were five. So it's the same thing. Yeah, those officials were probably racing it yeah. when they yeah. were ten or twelve <laughs> or whatever, and now they're fifty as officials and they're like, Oh, well, this is just a Saturday route for me. Yeah. What do you, so has there, is there anything you've done with your athletes to kind of like prep them for that mayhem that is, you know, European racing pretty much in a nutshell when we go over there? Uh, watching. So some of the races they have like the first, they have it from start to yeah. finish yeah. on, on yeah. video. So watching that and then reading the reports too, and, and understanding like if you're, if you want to make the break. And the whole on cycling news is how the race unfolded. And the first line is, the second line is, after 10 kilometers, a group of four got away. Well, then that means six miles an hour at 30 miles, six miles at 30 miles an hour, that breakaway is gone in under 15 minutes. So, so as a rider or athlete, if you want to make the break in that race, you need to warm up (laughs) and be ready to ride really hard for 15 minutes to make the break. Start in the front, be there. Start at the front. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think a lot of athletes as they, they have success, they get a little bit more confident or even overconfident, and they they mm-hmm. won't line up at the front. And um, it's name of a uh, he was a uh, he was a uh, the the captain of the K cycling team, and he ran. He helped with Jittery Joes, and he's been around forever. His name was Jed Schneider. Mm-hmm. Um, you may even know Jed. He seems like yeah. everyone knows Jed at yeah. some point in their career. They've all met him. But uh, he he made a comment to me racing for KU, and it goes something like, you're going to have a really hard time convincing me that starting in the front is a bad idea. <laughs> and he's 100% right. And, and it wasn't until like 10 years later that I understood the impact of that statement. Yeah. I like that. It's like people think of that as a cocky thing. Like I'm so comfortable being at the back. That's how strong I am. But it's like, no, that's just letting your head and get ahead of you. You ever tried moving up in a criterion right. when they right. ring a hundred dollar preem on lap one? Exactly. And you back? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, you just, okay, I can't win a hundred dollars now because I decided to line up and, you know, hang out and, you know, look cool at the back. Right. Exactly. I mean, at a certain point, like if you're doing 35, I don't care how strong you are, you're not going anywhere. And if you are, you're doing something that will screw you for the rest of the race. So it wasn't worth it just to say that you could start it at the back. Uh, so yeah, I agree with that. hundred percent. All right. Nice. What's your next one? Um, so we covered we covered my fourth one completely. Oh dang! Okay, <laughs> we've already talked about that one. Yeah. So I'm on my my last question actually, That's which right. is, That's right. what as a coach and or uh, athlete also are you looking forward to the most in 2021? Ooh, this is good. Um, that's a great question. I think as a I'll start with an athlete as an athlete. Um, and the reason I'm starting there is because, uh, this year I was, I was planning on, you know, stepping away from road racing and doing a lot more gravel events. And one of the reasons, actually the primary reason I was really looking forward to that 
um, outside of just being on the bad bandwagon of all the retired pros that are doing gravel. Uh, is, oh, be careful that bandwagon might get full. I know it seems full already. Uh, but honestly, man, I was looking forward to just racing with my athletes and being there next to them. And I've done countless, you know, PRT races and, and like I've done really pretty high level races with my athletes, which is an amazing experience. Like I've done hundred mile breakaways with my athletes, which is awesome. Um, but I wanted that across the board. Like I wanted that away from my elite and pro guys. Like I wanted it within, uh, you know, it's just such a cool way of bonding and knowing what your athletes truly went through. Cause like you literally rode the same course, um, that I was really looking forward to that. And I think that that's something that I'm still really looking forward to in, um, 2021, assuming at least some of those events take place. Um, so I'll, like, for example, if I do steamboat, um, which I think has a pretty good shot at happening, um, I'll have like, you know, 12 athletes at least doing it with me, which is amazing. Um, and I'm really excited for that. Uh, cause you know, like if I'm having a great day, cool. I'll probably have an athlete next to me. Or if I'm having a really awful day, cool. I'll have another athlete next to me. Like it's, it's, uh, it just makes that, that much more really cool experience. And I think it expands, um, coaching beyond, uh, a computer screen or even like a training ride. So I think I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and because it's like, that is their element, right? Like that's what they've put all their energy into. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to just like seeing their faces in the, in that moment too. Um, man, then with coaching, honestly, I'm really looking forward to a result sheet. <laughs> like I miss, I really miss a result sheet. And what I miss probably even more is an athlete talking about the tactics of a race. I miss that so much. I miss like diving into the nitty gritty of like, well, what was this move? Like you did this 700 watt effort. What was that? Um, did you need to do that? Like what was going on? I, I miss that. I miss like going through and, and hearing how the, uh, like what the athlete did, um, what the team dynamic was, um, what their preparation was. I just like miss all of that so much. Um, and I think that, I, th- I know my athletes do too. So that's something that I'm, I'm just looking forward to because I love going through power files. I love, I love making athletes stronger, but there's nothing like going through a race tactic report and trying to help them out so that next time they do the opposite of their mistake and then they crush it or, you know, win the race. And I, I love that. So yeah, that's, that's what I, what I'm looking forward to. That was a great question. Um, so how about you? What are you looking forward to? So I'll start with the athlete too. And I, I like the racing. I, I do like to race a lot. I love just the, the competition and the, the constant practice of like making good decisions mm-hmm. or fixing the bad decisions you made is, is also equally challenging. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to do <clears throat> the probably one gravel event since the lockdown, which was, or called I'll call it a you know a monument gravel event, which was the Belgian waffle ride in Cedar City. And oh nice, uh, oh, nice. because we hadn't gone anywhere for months and months, my my wife and my son came with me. Oh so cool, it was just oh, cool. us three hanging out like doing doing the gravel thing, and it was a lot of fun. And I. And I also realized like how much I missed it. Uh, 
I don't miss the utter mayhem that's the opening hour of those events. Yeah. <laughs> but I think no one misses that. Right. Uh, makes for great photos, makes for a good story, but it's ultimately really stressful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I, so I miss that, and I look forward to, to those racing events. Uh, I, I race on the road with the Monster Racing Team out of, out of Southern California. And yeah. we talked, we mentioned it before, like the pre-race meeting. And I think all of us on the team are so experienced and we're so dialed when we went to an event like Tulsa Tough last year. Our, our pre-race meeting was five minutes. Nice. And then we spent five or 10 minutes talking about like, which bars are we gonna get? Like, cause the bars are all breweries. So which bar are we gonna go to to get their beer when we're done? Yeah, that's, a, yeah. that's uh, an important thing at Tulsa, 100%. Absolutely, yeah. but we spent more time talking right. about that right. than about the race. Which is awesome. And, yeah. Because everyone kind of knows, right? You yeah. don't, there's only yeah. so much you can talk about uh, with, with that group of that, with that group of riders who are that experienced. And, and so I miss that as far as an athlete goes, as far as a coach goes, I'm, I'm also ready for a result sheet in uh, the fact that I feel like those events provide a, a subjective and objective uh, scorecard as to where the athlete was. Yeah. So if they've been skimping on workouts, it's like, hey, you have this event coming and that deadline is there. And if you don't do your homework, you're not gonna have what you consider a good day, judging by, again, by your goals and your desired outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't do your homework, you're not gonna have a great day and then you can't check this box, which I know is important to you. Uh, and, I, and I think that provides a lot of motivation for a lot of people. Um, and the fact that when moving in the next year, I think I'm optimistic we're gonna have the confidence to win someone put something on the calendar, we're going to be able to say, yes, that's going to be, it. that's going to happen. And, and so that is exciting to me as well. Cool. What, um, what did you think of just out of curiosity? What did you think of Cedar city? Like, what, what did you think of the, the race course and, and so on? So the, the, the guys, the, the monuments of cycling produces all those events mm -hmm. and they did an awesome job. Um, they worked with a, an epidemiologist, I believe, uh, to write a bunch of health and safety protocols for the event. Cool. And it was all up front. You got this like handbook via email a number of times that basically said, these are your expectations and, and you're going to be responsible for that. So that was cool. Uh, the event was very well ran like their events always are. Um, the people were the, 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 the racers, the, the people in the event, were also very respectful of, of everything asked of them. Um, and, and I thought it went, I thought it went really well and it was a little bit uh, subdued for what a normal Belgian waffle ride is. That doesn't mean people didn't have a lot of fun. It just means that, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe the whipped cream fight didn't happen. The, you know, <laughs> maybe we didn't dump a bunch of beer on each other. We just, you know, drank it sitting across from the big table from each other yeah so yeah that's cool yeah i was pumped to see that take place i'm hoping the um bwr like uh san diego one actually does take place that would be remarkable what do you think that what's your kind of like the local area around you like jurisdiction at this point 
So we're we're currently in a lockdown 2.0. Okay. All right. So right now it's uh, I mean not even the zoo is open. Okay. So, um, but that's it's not. But it's December and May is five months away. Right. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So crossed. I don't really have an answer to that. I wish I had a crystal ball. <laughs> uh, it'd be nice to know. Yeah. But, um, Fingers crossed. Are you gonna Are you gonna be there if it does take place? I will definitely be there. Awesome. It's only a 30-minute drive from the house. Oh, so easy. I feel like not only do I have to be there, I want to be there. Nice. Um, I won't say that I'm going to be uh, up front with those, with those uh, leaders of the pack. I've, I play that game, and I can definitely ride with those guys for a little while. But it comes at enormous cost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a long event, man. It's, it's long. It is. Yeah, it is, a, uh, it is approximately 50 miles too long. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I guess it's better than the hundred miles too long of of uh, Unbound. <laughs> yeah, that is that is also way too long. But but I think it's way too long for everybody. And then and then the probably my my saving grace for Unbound was uh, so the XL version finishes at the same time, but they do a different course. So there's some periods of the day where they're coming towards you, so you cross. Oh, that's right? cool. And as horrible as I felt seeing some of those, yeah, some of those yeah. riders, I was like, okay, I'm not that. Bad. Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing all right, man. That's that's inspiring. I mean, it, it is inspiring, but I also think they're nuts. But yeah, one and the same, I suppose. That that is fully silly, but <laughs> but everyone, I mean, everyone's uh, idea of adventure and perspective yeah. of adventure yeah, is different. different. Yep. And yeah, I I think it's silly because I also think there's zero chance that I would ever be able to do it. Whereas <laughs> you have an athlete like man. Jake Wells, like that guy is a that guy is a hero. Yeah. He should wear a cape yeah. all the time, because <laughs> he's a cross national champion. Like how many times? I think he just it's like a hobby for him. He just has a whole closet for right. those just jerseys. jerseys. <laughs> and then and then he does like Dirty Kanza or Unbound now XL, the three hundred and fifty mile one, and he does them all and always does well and always has a smile on his face. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm jealous, but. <laughs> Um, but, I'm, but I'm not jealous at the same time. Right, exactly. That's kind of the along the lines of what I meant earlier with like the stoke is just just to see them out there. They just love it, and it's um, I am definitely jealous at times because I'm like I wish I could enjoy myself as much as they're enjoying themselves right now, and they're 300 miles into this ride. So uh, different people. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, okay, cool. We've been going for an almost an hour 50. So I'm going to toss my last question at you. Um, so favorite workout that you have been giving athletes around this time. So like just recently kind of like what has been a new workout or just old workout that you've kind of like gravitated towards that you've been really digging for whatever reason it might be. So the favorite workout I've been giving athletes recently mm -hmm. is probably it's a two-parter. Okay. One is minimize pedaling, minimize coasting. Ooh. Yeah, a lot of I mean everyone can ride hard up a hill, but very few people can ride hard downhill. Well, they don't even try. Right. Right. And I think that's important. That's an important aspect. Um, same as like at the professional level. You never see breakaways go in headwinds. They always go in like tail cross though, which is effectively a downhill in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so that that's so that's a skill that I think a lot of people need to learn in general is how to pedal down a hill. And the other part is, in that context of minimize coasting, um, I'm a big fan of intensity factor because it gives an athlete the the freedom to let their power do whatever it needs to do, as long as they keep the intensity factor where it, in the realm of where it should be, so that um, they're not overcooking themselves on any one day. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my favorite workout within the realm of minimized coasting is a, uh, a negative split on the intensity factor. Ooh, I, so like that. I like that. Every 30 minutes, the intensity factor needs to go up. Um, and if you're looking at like a four hour ride, yeah, you got to time that start, start slow. Yep. And then I'll put in the comments like, no, seriously, start really, really <laughs> slow. Because if you come out swinging with like even a 62 intensity factor, you're you're in for a long day. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That teaches control. It teaches pacing. It teaches fueling. It teaches a lot of things. That's a good one. Right, it, and all the things you said. It's like it's a deceptively difficult workout, and that there's a lot of uh, elements to it. But on paper, it's really easy to write that out. Oh yeah, yeah. I can see a majority of. <laughs> The athletes I coach not completing that <laughs> effectively. I mean, almost almost everyone fails the first time. Yeah, I I failed the first time, and I would probably fail if I had to do it to today as well. What's the like average? I guess when you see people succeed, what is the like IF that they start at, and then what is the IF that they tend to finish at? Oh, like low low fifties. Yeah, start. that's yeah. what I figured. And then they finish. And that last hour is typically like in the 80, like 0.8. That's pretty good. All right. That's pretty good. And, yeah. and they feel great about it yeah. too because you yeah. finish strong. Right. And fast. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's something about like at the end of the day, like blitzing the last Oh, hour totally. Day. 100%. Yeah. Makes you just feel good about everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. For the listeners, that's like starting basically in recovery zone. Um, so you're really slow. Um you know, a lot of people would describe recovery rides as like your grandmother can pass you. So it's kind of like starting the ride at, at that intensity. And yeah, there's very few that would do that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. That's a, that's a great but, idea. But mathematically, the longer it is in the day, the harder it is to move that intensity factor. True. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's that, I guess the other way, do you tell them like what the, you don't tell them the increments that they have to increase, right? You just tell them the uh, that it has to in be a positive um, change. Right. Okay, right. got it. Yeah, I don't tell them any anything more than just that. Just as good. long as it goes up, it can go up like what zero point zero one, so almost a minuscule, right? Barely noticeable right. amount, and that's still a win. Right. Yeah. So I guess if you're like really controlled as an athlete, um, which again is very rare, and you probably live in the right places um where you can stay pretty steady on the pedals uh you could just like very very slowly increase um but that would be difficult yeah or if you're in the midwest like go out with the tail end right <laughs> yeah that do it the too. way that no one ever thinks about doing it <laughs> yeah for us it'd be like ride to kansas and back kind of yeah not not the greatest um, yeah, that's a great one. Um, so then an extension of that question is, uh, favorite workout for the holidays. So do you like give like, let's say like Christmas day or new year's day or, you know, Thanksgiving or whatever, do you give like a, 
a certain workout that you like to give for those days? So my, my favorite workout that I give for the holidays is, is simply go ride your bike, whatever you want to do today. Yep. I feel like given normal circumstances, the holidays can be stressful and people riding for, for exercise and almost for stress relief and almost to get out of the house when their mother-in-law has been telling them about how, like, you know, <laughs> how to, how you have to cook a turkey this way instead of that way. Right. Yep. Um, so just go on a bike ride, whatever you want to do, however you look long you want to go and, uh, and just go ride and have fun. Yeah. Yep. That's the exact same. I do. I just give what's what I call like an athlete choice holiday ride. Um, and some athletes I have will go smash out a five hour ride cause they, uh, have nothing to do and that's what they want to do. And they, yeah, they do want to get away from their family. But then I have others that like, just take it as an off day. Cause that's what they want to do is like take the time with their kids or something like that. Um, and I think that that's like a gift within itself is just like, let them choose. So yeah, I like that. That's what I do. Um, I guess I'll answer this. Um, so the so lately I've been into and oftentimes, especially within like early season work, I get really into cadence work. Um, and um, a couple, you know, at the very beginning of the season, I had uh, Mac on and we talked about cadences because he like he loves to really dive into that. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been getting into uh, these days has been a lot of different cadence works and just kind of like the ability to do over under within a single ride. So like have them do a set um, on an over gear basis and then have them do a set at a um, like kind of more on under gear. So a, you know, anywhere from, you know, a hundred plus RPMs depending on the athlete. Um, and and it, it's not a workout designed to have it be just a ridiculous power marker or anything that's really you know sexy in that regard. It's just a, you know, tends to be kind of like middle of the road um, tempo kind of range. And I actually have them, you know, the concept is staying in control and seeing how kind of like the heart rate rises and falls because usually you have, I mean, more often than not, people tend to uh, be a little bit less effective at a higher RPM than a lower, depending on the athlete. Um, but then it pulls out those weaknesses and then you can very quickly, um, kind of teach an athlete how to just stay smooth and stay steady. And it's like the perfect time of year to be diving into those nitty gritty things when you don't need to be really nailing certain, um, outputs. So I've been really digging that. Um, a lot of it's been a little bit of a, of a balance between, um, how you do those on the trainer and how to do them outside. So how to like keep your body from overheating if you're inside and how to do it effectively if you're on rolling terrain. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that and then also throwing into like, how do you stand? How do you, um, stay maybe in the sticks if you're working with a T tier? Um, that's like all the, the different builds that I get into a lot right now that, um, athletes tend to really like because that allows them to kind of like progress through and see pretty you know pretty decently quick progression too from week to week to be able to hold you know a more sustained time at uh, 100 rpms because it's pretty amazing like if you get an athlete and they haven't worked on any of that and then all of a sudden you're having them do 100 rpms for five minutes they are floundering at that that's a pretty difficult task sometimes depending um so yeah that's been a lot of the stuff that i've been getting into and then like also over gear sprints and under gear sprints like it's all of that like 
maximum power isn't necessarily, again, the primary objective, but then throwing in those mixtures really allows that transfer to take place and their effectiveness and transfer to really improve quickly. So yeah, that's what I've been digging as of late. How, how sore are your athletes to, after the first high cadence work? Super sore. Yeah, most of them have something to say, whether or not that's a, like, my butt hurts to uh, my, you know, my legs are, are kind of sore from just the torque of, of flipping over the pedals. Um, and then we oftentimes have to kind of, like, work on, because um, it, it's always that bounce. Like, when you, I've always found that when I give athletes, cadence markers they are torn between this concept of like wait power is always the primary objective like how do i i can't step away from that um and you're always missing that like perfect gear to be in at least most of the time so it's that balance of finding that sweet spot between uh the two and and how to get an athlete there and um then to watch them kind of like get more and more effective and then stop coming to me with like i still feel like i'm bouncing like how do i stop bouncing um and or like well i'm getting this clicking sound when i pedal how do i keep that from happening and uh but yeah they do tend to be pretty regularly sore for a little while um and then and then it's even more fascinating with ttiers because they have more of a like solid solidified position that they need that i ask them to stay in um and you know i could be a little bit more defined with my those that are just kind of like on a normal road bike but uh with the TTR is it's stay in the stick, stay, um, really solid work on your shoulders, like really focus on that and then let the, let the power be what it'll be. And then focus on the cadence and then see if that makes you uncomfortable. See if it makes you want to move your shoulders. If it makes you mess up your position, um, because you know, you're going to be in that position probably, you know, at the, this is an example, but just like the heel of TT is going to make you do that. So, we need to get that dialed. Um, and that's always a, a big kind of like eye opening moment for him, which is cool. All right, sweet. That was solid. Um, thank you for, you know, the questions in general. That was good stuff. Um, thanks for tuning in everyone. I hope everyone enjoyed our conversation and the topics that we covered. Um, if anyone has any like recommendations on other coaches for me to bring on, um, let me know, reach out. Um, you can find us on Instagram at training edge pod. Um, Adam, thank you. And where can everyone find you at? How do they reach out to you? Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Adam Mills. I am a coach with source endurance and you can just find us at, uh, sourceendurance.com will take you there. Sweet. Okay. Well, everyone have a great week. Enjoy it. Um, and I will, this one, you know, as I've done with the last couple ones, we'll break this up into two part because, you know, most people don't want to listen to a two hour episode. So that's fine by me. Um, so we'll split it up and we'll have this out in a couple of weeks. Um, but till this comes out and till next time, have a great week, have some awesome holidays and, um, keep finding your edge. Thanks everyone. (laughs) 